Hello, and welcome to your favorite storytelling podcast, Tales from a Cult Insider. I'm your host, chief storyteller, and happy ice cream eater, Jared Garrett. I was born and raised in the Process Church of the Second Coming, which was one of the more infamous cults in the UK and the USA. The cult morphed over the years into Best Friends Animal Society, and I'm here to tell you all about growing up in this very strange, secretive religious commune. As always, your questions will be answered, so don't hesitate to ask. Maybe your questions and their answers will even be featured on the podcast. I will always do this introduction because each of these will be able to stand on its own, but I recommend you go back, fast forward through the first 45 seconds, and listen to each story. They won't necessarily be sequential, but sometimes they'll build on each other. Today, we're going to talk about just a basic history of the process, or the Process Church of the Second Coming, or the Foundation Faith of God, or Best Friends Animal Sanctuary, or Society. These are all the same thing, although it did morph over the years from the original The Process to what it's currently called Best Friends Animal Society. So, very quick context setting. This cult started in the UK, at Oxford, in the 60s, which shouldn't surprise anybody given what was going on in the 60s around the world, especially the Western world. Much disquiet and um, discord around all the wars and uh, such stuff like that. There was backlash against society, being seen as very restrictive. And a guy named Del Ron Hubbard started Scientology. There were some processes going on uh, in this early iteration of Scientology. I know very little about Scientology except for what I've experienced growing up in this cult. And one of the things that they were doing there was using some machine to help people become kind of in tune with who they were. Their personalities, maybe past lives, I'm not really sure. Maybe the aliens controlling us from above. Elrond didn't like the way some people were using his machine and his process. They were called Robert de Grimston and Marianne, his wife. By the way, Marianne uh, did have a background as a prostitute and may may have been involved in one of the biggest sex scandals in British politics ever. So you can Google Marianne de Grimston. Not going to spell it. You'll find it. In any case, these guys were using this process and this machine or whatever in a way that Elrond didn't like. He said, get out. So he left and they took people with them. A bunch of British people, a lot of them blue bloods, very aristocratic, talking a lot like this, right? Right through their nose. Very good people, you know, very well educated and very well trained, raised with good manners. Also, some of them talked like this, if you know what I mean, with a very, very posh accent. And I don't really know what each accent means, but I'm quite good at them now uh, because of the way I was raised, surrounded by these folks. They kind of formed a group of pretty devoted adherents for the first uh, few years, but then they kind of got a bad rep and ended up leaving the UK. They traveled around a little ways. I'm not really going to get into the specifics through Europe. They had German shepherds. They ended up in some place in Mexico when they say that, you know, surviving a hurricane was a big red letter event for them. It was kind of a come to Jesus moment, except for they weren't coming to Jesus. They were coming to their version of God, Jesus and Lucifer, who they all apparently were three 
separate but sort of the same beings and stuff. Maybe Jesus and Lucifer were like two sides of a being. I'm not sure there. This is back when they were a little more strange. Um, and then they ended up in the U.S. and they moved around a lot. And over the years, they finally got some branches established. As they originally moved and then had some branches established, they kind of continued having kids um, on orders of Marianne, who was the cult of personality portion of this cult. Uh, she was a very strong personality, very, very eccentric, uh, very demanding in many ways. She apparently would tell people who they were to hook up with, sometimes, maybe, um, not always. And children were sometimes products of these unions or lacks that just kind of momentary unions. And they sort of came in shifts. So you kind of get an inkling that really there were um, some cycles of get down. Let's just say this is a PG program, friends. Uh, in any case, so I was born in 74 in Chicago, which is where they had set up shop for some time. There are apparently at the time of Chicago was a Toronto branch and maybe one in New York and perhaps even one in New Orleans. Uh, when they set up shop, they would basically open a coffee shop so people could come in and drink the Java. And uh, that was pretty terrible, Jared, but I'm going to keep saying Java because it's fun. Um, and shoot the breeze and they would become members of this cult. Um, there are, There was a hierarchy, which I won't get into here, but we'll eventually get into that. I want to get into some fun stories real quick before we end up, we finish our 30 minutes. Um, and so they had the branches. I was born in Chicago, but the Chicago branch was closed down within a year of my birth. So we ended up in New York City. Uh, New York City was kind of the first time I think all the kids or most of the kids were gathered in one place in this cult. Uh, there were about 30 of us. There were a lot. And... Um, we all slept in the same room, some kind of bigger room in some redstone building in Manhattan. Uh, I was, I, I, my first memories of when I was, or when I was like three, I think, of kind of waking up from a nightmare and wishing that somebody would come and comfort me and nobody was there. Um, and about 30 of us, yeah, on sleeping bags or uh, just blankets in this room. And it smelled really bad. Um, and there were times that I have a memory of walking to nursery slash preschool at the age of three and a half to four, uh, walking down the streets of Manhattan, really strong, vivid image. Um, and there were kids of all ages. There were kids my age, three or four. There were probably some babies there as well who were being raised by their moms. But by the time you're age three or so, you were basically weaned and were seen as not needing your mom anymore to breastfeed and do whatever kind of basic care. So you were basically shuffled into the kid group uh, who was watched over by anybody who couldn't raise money on the streets very well or didn't have some other leadership role. So the outcasts of society who joined this cult, and it was the outcasts or the less functional members of the cult who would watch over the kids uh, for a value of watch over. Um, that may be an unfair representation, but that is the representation that I'm aware of. So. Um, yeah, that was kind of our life in general, and uh, that was New York City for us. Uh, the cult daily life essentially consisted of morning kind of prayer ritual, an evening prayer ritual, 
Sunday rituals uh, that involved ash and oil and um, anointing people and singing in circles with hands linked. And uh, that was that, basically, for New York. And then it kind of moved around some more. This is just a quick history of my life in the cult. Kind of moved around some more. And then uh, they ended up establishing several branches. And the kids kind of divided up. Many kids um, and were taken away with their parents who left because they had decided they had reached their limit of processness. But as the process morphed from process to process church of the second coming to something called the foundation faith of God, becoming a little more vanilla, you could say. They had branches around the country, uh, establishing basically homes where everybody lived together in a commune. Uh, the kids would live, uh, share large, large numbers of us would be in rooms. Um, and often the leader of the particular branch would have their kids with them, basically having a little family relationship there, whereas many of the rest of us did not. Uh, I was one of the kids who got to move around a lot because my parents didn't have a relationship with me and nor vice versa. I actually found out who my dad was when I was eight. Uh, the branches, their main goal was to have people, functioning adults, go out and ask for money in big public places. And they would send their money after costs to keep the cult going and to pay for food to keep their branch going. They would send their money to the headquarters, which for a time was in Arizona and then later was in a town near a town called Kanab. And that extra money that was sent was to support the bay, the big mission of animal uh, rescue, uh, animal adoption and rehabilitation, which is again, an, it's a noble cause. I'll say that more, more often too. It's a noble cause. They're doing a good thing. So that was the general logistics of the cult. As I was shifted around year, you know, year after year, month after month, I, I probably hit 13 different schools by the time I was in third grade. Um, in third grade, I finished the last couple of months of third grade in Denver. I uh, did all of fourth grade in Denver and was shocked to find myself uh, in Denver still as fifth grade rolled around going to the same school I'd gone to for fourth grade, which was uh, the first time I'd ever done anything like that. Friends that I'd had in fourth grade were shocked to see me because I told them I'd be gone. I would move because that was the story of my life. I was in bliss, my friends, being able to see the people who I had spent time with the year before, have that kind of consistency and have people actually care about me, was a new experience. But it was not to last. I was shifted off from uh, Denver and sent over to Dallas, which had been established as the new children's center. And I was one of the last children to arrive there. Um, for Who even knows why? I don't, maybe I was forgotten. I don't even know, man. Um, and arrived there with uh, fury in my gut because one month into my fifth grade year of having friends for the first time, I was taken away from that. So I was mad. And that was the story of my life for the next several years. Furious. Furious at the people who were making me live this bizarre life. And yes, I knew it was bizarre because despite it being a cult, despite it being full of people with strange notions about how children should be raised, or neglected, or watched over, or controlled, or trained. Um, we had a weird amount of uh, free time, because we were basically neglected. 
it's hard to say which would be better. The neglect where we got to do basically whatever we wanted, which was in itself somewhat damaging, um, considering some of the things I got into, or the abuse. Sometimes when they decided that there was too much neglect, they would do hyper-control. And hyper-control, 100% of the time, resulted in abuse on some level. Emotional, physical, who even knows? Lots more. I'll have stories to tell you later. Uh, this is a general kind of set the stage thing. So um, that's how I grew up. And I got out when I was 17. That will be a story in a podcast all by itself. I'm not going to say much more about that. But I did get out at age 17 and I camped on my dad's floor. He'd been kicked out some years before. And uh, <clears throat> that was uh, basically how it went. I lived with him for a school year and got my feet under me and went off on my own. And here I am, an old dude with a bunch of kids. <clears throat> I'm not that old, guys. With a bunch of kids and a wonderful wife who is in law school. And I do corporate training for people. And I write novels like a maniac. Uh, do my own audiobooks and everything because this warm, honey voice can't be wasted on not doing audiobooks. So here we go. All right, let's get to some fun stories. So in New York, about 30 kids, right? Uh, ranging in age from uh, about three uh, to as old as 14 or 15. Uh, those older kids had not been born and raised in the cult. They They had known life before uh, being dragged into the cult. And in every one of their experience, it was kicking and screaming and hating it, often because the cult had encouraged their mom or their dad, typically their mom, to leave the dad and join the cult and have that mom leave their entire extended family behind. And also to have that mom bring any inheritance they might have and consecrate it to the cult. So these kids who were of, you know, sentient age, um, who were dragged into the cult, did not like it. They were unhappy, very angry much of the time. And one of those was my oldest brother. I have, I had two older brothers. We all shared a mom. My mom had been married once before she was enticed into the cult uh, with her husband and their young son. Her husband was disliked by Marianne and run out of the cult, leaving my mother and her displeased son, my oldest brother, Daniel. Uh, my mother soon after was a, uh, had a relationship with one of the men in the cult, one of the founders, a man named John, who talked like this right through his nose. A very hard worker, a very smart man, generally a very good man, but uh, he's founded this cult, and so, you know, his legacy is whatever you want what to call it, right? Um, and with John, they had another son. Uh, my mom had another son who was my other, other older brother. And then I was born. John was not my father. Big deal. So my oldest brother, Daniel, knew what life was like before the cult. He wanted to go back to it. He felt like he'd been robbed. He wanted to go back and live with his father. Uh, the main character in my book, Beyond the Cabin, is actually modeled after Daniel. So is the oldest brother in my book, Beyond the Cabin. Uh, Daniel very much influences much of that book and my relationship with him and my relationship with what happened to him later. Uh, <clears throat> Daniel became our ringleader. He seemed fearless. I remember, I don't remember the sight of him, 
so much as I remember my feeling toward him, which was awe and pride that this was my older brother, uh, my oldest brother, uh, and he was having us do these cool things. Uh, there's a legend of a raid on a Dr. Pepper truck. I don't have a very vivid recollection of it, but there's a legend of it. And so sometimes I tell the story as if I were there. I don't recall being involved. I think I was probably too young. But if I were involved, I'm sure I got like a six pack of like Dr. P. I still love Diet Dr. Pepper. It's my drink of choice, my poison of choice. Uh, Daniel organized us into interesting activities. One, in the city of New York, in our large room, which was our bedroom and where we stayed when there was nothing else to do or where we couldn't, when we couldn't get by the adults, um, we just did whatever. And so somehow he happened upon a pair of boxing gloves, one pair of boxing gloves and organized a tournament for us to use these boxing gloves to beat each other with. Now, one pair of boxing gloves, it's a little hard to have a fair boxing you know, match. Nonetheless, one person got one glove, one person got the other glove, and it didn't matter if you were left or right-handed. You were not allowed to hit with your ungloved hand. You had to hit with the glove. But, you know, he tried to coach at us, coach us, and, and get us to hit each other harder than maybe we should have. And I knocked my guy out. I didn't knock him out. It was a, it was a TKO, not an actual knockout. Uh, basically, the kid got <laughs> got the wind knocked out of him. Uh, and then got his chin uh, knocked a little bit, uh, and he was done. Um, and me and that kid never really got along, unfortunately, but that is um, not too surprising, I wouldn't think. So um, that was a fun experience. I have strong memories of seeing my peers <laughs> walloping each other with these giant gloves, and I also did the same. Uh, with some of my peers who were my age, Daniel made sure it was always you fight in your own class, which was your own size slash age. And it was great. Um, we had a lot of fun, a wild time. Uh, following that, uh, soon after that, uh, we were all baptized. Now, by this time, it was, I was age four or five, I think. Um, it was probably still called the process or the Process Church of the Second Coming, but they were shifting to a slightly more vanilla-ish, Christ, non-denominational Christian kind of approach to religion. And apparently, Marianne got it in her head that all the kids should be baptized, no matter how old we were. Um, and baptism, in her mind, was going to be whatever she said. It didn't have to be like the Anglican approach or the Catholic or Protestant full submersion. It was whatever she said. And so what she said was we would get these kiddie pools and we would fill, they would be filled with water. And then all of us kids were called to join this, go into this room where these several kiddie pools were. Now we didn't know what was going on. Nobody told us, nobody asked us what we wanted to do because that was our life. We didn't have any kind of self-determination, nor did we have any sense. In my experience, there was no safe person to whom I could turn if I was concerned, and there was no parental relationship whatsoever that I could recall. Um, I, I knew who my mom was, again, found out who my dad was when I was 18, never called, or eight, never called them mom or dad while I was in the cult. Um, and whenever I greeted them, I, called, I said, God bless you, because that was the standard greeting for the cult. 
you see an adult, you say, God bless you. The kids, the adult says, God bless you. And if you don't say God bless you to them, they correct you sometimes with a stinging smackaroni uh, somewhere. So um, back to the baptism, we were all to be baptized. We didn't know this though. We uh, were brought into this room and I was positioned next to a pool with my back facing the pool. I was to sit down on the floor, lean up against the pool, the kiddie pool, which was at least halfway up my back, and then just do what, just sit there. What happened next was terrifying. One of the adults said some words, I have no idea what, took me by the forehead and pushed me back hard, dunking me completely, arching my back over the side of the pool, so I felt like I was being shoved under the water and held under the water while the rest of me was suspended in the air over the edge of the pool. And I, I'm pretty sure I was held under that water for about a day and a half. Um, hard to breathe, spluttering. I was terrified, brought out of there. And that was that. Never told it was baptism, but it was baptism of some kind. Um, of course, baptism, the word means immersion. So it wasn't... Anyway, we're not going to you know get hung up on those terms. Um, that was terrifying, and I was afraid of water for many years after. Uh exacerbated later by Francis holding me under a pool water for like 30 seconds. And I was terrified. So, um, yeah, that, uh, that was, those were some major experiences there in the New York branch. Uh, another fun memory, <clears throat> uh, in New York was being walked down the streets to nursery school and playing at nursery school. And it felt normal. Every time we were at school, it felt more normal than any other thing. Um, even though we, the cult was all we knew, fundamentally, in my heart, some I knew something was off by it. Um, maybe it was the fact that we were going to school that helped me see that. Maybe it was the fact that we got to watch whatever TV the adults were watching. Really, truly, with zero censoring, despite the fact that we could have used some censoring. Um, something was wrong, but at nursery school, I felt normal. We played with friends. I got crushes on girls. And when I saw those cool kids, girls and boys, at the top of the 15-foot-high monkey bars, grabbing on and flipping over it a couple of times, man, I had to do that. And so I got up on that thing, and I did it. It was great. I was good at it. And then I did it again, and I fell. And I fell the whole 15 feet down to the blacktop and woke up. Not long later, to kids surrounding me, gasping, terrified. Apparently there was blood. Don't remember the blood. And both of my front teeth were out. And apparently that was my state for a while until they grew in. That was a good time. Um, I still have the scar under my right eyebrow. Yeah, good times. And um, yeah, I remember eating breakfast at the nursery school, being called Gerard, Gerald, Jerry. Uh, every variation on Jared that you could come up with that didn't include Jared. Uh, Jared was an unusual name back then, obviously very common today. Jared the jeweler and Jared the guy in jail after, you know, the subway stuff and what he was terrible doing. That was terrible, Mr. Fogel. Uh, so that's those couple of uh, experiences. I'd like to just finish off in these last few minutes with one other final story about uh, when all of the kids were in this place called Angel something, Angel City, Angel Town, Angel's Landing. No, not Angel's Landing. Um, it was kind of a weird place. It wasn't, 
Angel Canyon, which is what the cult called the Kanab place, the Kanab Canyon that they bought. <clears throat> it was just some, like, it's almost like a homestead. We, we, because of the size of the group, everybody living in a commune, they had to get some pretty large places. And um, one of the uh, places that we ended up being on in was this place in, I think, Virginia or Western New York. It was Western New York or Eastern New York, just kind of in the rural area. And, um, I mean, we're talking about a group of 20, 30-plus adults and about 30 plus, 30 or so kids. I think a couple kids had been kind of weeded out by their parents who wanted to get out of there by that time. Uh, we were basically left on our own to do whatever we wanted. Uh, we would run just wild in that amazing countryside. It was beautiful, um, just green. And there was a pond, I think, and then there was like farmland, beautiful green trees. And I'm a young kid, you know, I'm, I'm four or five. I get to run around out there. That was fantastic. Um, it was a good life, you know, and despite the fact of not having parents, despite the fact that I didn't feel like there was anybody I could turn to, uh, I didn't have any comfort, a safety net, a, a safe space. I was always in the, in the eyes of the adults. They could see me all the time. I had no privacy. Uh, all the kids, we all slept in the same room again uh, on sleeping pads or cots. I was being forced to eat something called avocado, which was slimy and gross. All the other vegetables and fruits I loved, though, it was it was actually pretty good, you know. Yeah, we had to go and to town and get you know day or two day old bread because we couldn't afford anything else, and we ate something called scrapple, which I, I never googled because I don't ever really want to know what was in it. Although I I've been told it's okay. I don't know about that, man. Um, overall, life was okay, you know, except for the weirdness of it all. And calling adults, God bless, you know, by their first names and saying, God bless you. And uh, being terrified of all the adults all the time. Um, and, you know, it was terrifying to have the adults who couldn't fundraise be the ones raising us. And these were the people who couldn't function very well. And they had tempers and would yell for what felt like hours at the kids. Granted, I was a little kid, so it could have been only 30 seconds, but I know for a fact that sometimes it was longer than that. Having tools get thrown at your head um, and get smacked on your head, um, being pushed aside, being yelled at for no reason, uh, not sure where you stand with adults, with the world, with the other kids. Feeling like these are built-in friends or siblings, these kids, but then each of us is having their own individual experience because some of them, their moms were more involved and some, some of us, they weren't. In my case, uh, I felt a connection with my mom uh, when she was cooking because she would let me help her cook. And that's basically the relationship that we had for most of my life until I was a, lot, a little older, until kind of in my teens. Um, she taught me to cook and I do have a love of cooking and I think that's partly because of her, but, um, yeah, on its face, it looks fine. But then deeper you see boys and girls getting smacked hard, being yelled at, intimidated, um, having actual screwdrivers smacked onto their heads and having them have strong, bad bleeding head wounds, um, and uh, the person who did it having to try to cover that up. Um, 
even though there was never any repercussion that we knew of, having a kid wet their bed, their little sleeping pad or, or sleeping bag, and be reamed for, for what felt like the whole night, while we're all in the same room trying to sleep, having some parent come in and just decide to have a, have a yelling match with one of the kids, um, and having the adults have yelling matches with each other. Um, so yeah, run around free in the countryside and then not really feel like you have a solid ground to walk on. Um, it was not cool, man, but it was cool, man, but then it wasn't. And so I'm not going to have make you pass judgment or form an opinion, but that was the kind of younger childhood setting for me. Um, Vivid images of yelling, vivid images of running around, vivid images of pretty bad verbal and emotional and physical abuse happening to those around me and sometimes to me. But then being able to swing around on vines on these gorgeous trees and then being told to march around a house ten times, um, making the actual Nazi salute. Um chanting something, I don't even remember, but then being able to jump off of the rafters in a barn into a a giant, giant kind of wagon of hay. It was a life of contradictions in those days. And it left me feeling kind of isolated because I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to think about my life growing up. And that's where we're going to stop for today. Next time, we'll talk a lot more about how children were in general treated, and we'll start getting into my own personal experiences um, as uh, I went through life being moved over to Dallas um, and what that meant to me and how that changed my life uh, growing up. And we'll also get into some of the interesting rituals and practices of the school. Until next time, this has been... Tales from a Cult Insider, and we'll talk again soon.